This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I was trying to think of a way to make money without putting my kids in daycare, and I filled out this application, and they called me, and they were like, hey, you're pretty cool, but nobody's going to want your eggs. But she's like, you're a great candidate for surrogacy. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Do you by any chance know where I put my keys, phone, shoes, or nouveau ring? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. You boys won that money game, didn't you? And need to talk about more. Don't you say your goodbyes. I'm Anna Sale. Sarah Short was 18 years old when she and her boyfriend found out she was pregnant. I had started going to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so, you know, my first impulse was, okay, I'm going to look into adoption. Sarah went to her first prenatal checkup, and that got her worried about how she was going to pay her medical bills. I didn't understand how health insurance worked. I mean, as far as I know, I think I walked into the hospital and asked them, where do I go if I'm having a baby? Hmm. And... um But then they told me, oh, this health insurance that you have through your dad won't cover OB-type services. And I asked them, um, you know, is there something in place for poor people? Can I set up a payment plan? And they just said, no, no. And so at that point, I really didn't know what to do, and I just didn't go back to the doctor. Sarah eventually decided to keep the baby. But she didn't have another doctor's appointment until she was seven months into her pregnancy. She tried to enroll in Medicaid, but she needed to track down a copy of her birth certificate. Hers had gotten lost. By the time I got it, I'd already had my daughter, and they told me that there was nothing they can do and it wouldn't be covered. Do you remember when the bill came in the mail? Uh, Yeah, I remember these bills started showing up, anesthesia and the hospital stay and the doctor, and I just laughed. I was like, I can't pay this. I can't write a check for thousands of dollars. And so I kind of just didn't know what to do, and I just threw them away. And then they turned red, and they kept showing up. Um, You know, then I start getting calls, and I stop answering my phone if it's not a number that I recognize. This was 10 years ago. Sarah lives in Oregon. She grew up in a small farming community there. Like a lot of families around her, she was homeschooled, partially because the local schools weren't great, she says, and also because her family was really religious. 
It was through church that Sarah met her boyfriend, Travis, when she was 14. There was a lot of talk about abstinence and waiting until marriage to have sex. And then it didn't really work out, and I wasn't too upset about it. Um, <laughs> I think probably, you know, the the big hole in it was just the um, education about contraception. I always thought to myself, uh, with my really pro-life upbringing, that the pill or the morning-after pill was the same as abortion. So I was more concerned about not being on birth control than I was about having sex. <laughs> Sarah and Travis had a small church wedding when she was eight months pregnant. After their baby was born, her husband hopped from farm job to farm job while Sarah stayed home with their daughter. I had a difficult time finding daycare, and so I was like, okay, I guess I'm just going to stay home with this baby, and I'm going to stop school, and I'm going to stop working, and that's going to be my role. Did it feel financially stable? Um, You know, it's funny to look back on it now because we made so little money, <laughs> but it felt like a lot of money to teenagers. Yeah. And um, there was also this um, kind of weird adjustment where we felt like we were living independently, but there were a lot of things that our parents were still paying for, like auto insurance. And um, I think my husband's dad was still paying for his cell phone and things like that. And as those things slowly shifted over to us, um, you know, then... Now I can't imagine living off of the income that we did at the time. And they still owed a lot of money to the hospital where Sarah gave birth. She estimates that it was about $10,000, and that was before it went into collections and started accruing interest and fees. Then the recession hit. Work dried up for Sarah's husband. Then I finally got really lucky, and I got a what I considered an amazing job opportunity as a teller at a credit union. It was like the first real job that I had had. I made uh, $1,200 a month working full-time. And at the time, that felt like, you know, a nice income to me and, you know, felt like a professional job where I have, you know, a professional outfit that I wear and they trained me. And um, about that time, I got a call from the hospital where I delivered, and they said, um, we've changed our policies, and we've revisited your bill, and we want to set up a payment plan with you. And I said, you know, this is amazing timing. I just got this great job, and so call me when I get my first paycheck, and we'll figure something out. And so I made a, a what was a pretty significant payment for, you know, people who weren't making a ton of money. I think it was like $350 a month or something like that on these bills. Even with those payments, Sarah still owed thousands of dollars to collection agencies. She and her husband had a second child, and this time the birth was covered by Medicaid. But the old debt haunted Sarah. She worried about it showing up on her credit report and holding her family back. I just... I felt like we were never going to own a home. I was still learning how to be a grown-up and, you know, having all that debt that I just, when I would think about how much it was and what it would take to pay it off and how long it would take, I would just get so overwhelmed and I would be like, we're never going to be able to get out from under this. And it felt like it was all my fault. I I mean, even looking back on it, I... 
I know some things that I could have done now. And that was why, you know, I started looking at ways that I could pay this off myself. It felt like I was beholden to my husband to pay these bills that were really my responsibility. And you felt like that because you had had the baby, even though it was your child together? I felt like I had been... At the time, I didn't know what I could have done differently. You hear about these people who are taking advantage of the system. I was like, how come I didn't take advantage of the system? What system was there <laughs> for me to take advantage of? Why didn't anyone tell me of? how to take advantage of the system? <laughs> that's, that's how it felt to me. I was oh. like, you know, I know lots of people who had babies and, you know, were living at the poverty line. And somehow it got taken care of. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Sarah was intent on paying off this debt. And now, with two kids at home, she needed to bring in extra money without also having to pay for child care. So she started looking into selling her eggs. But when she reached out to a fertility clinic, she was told she wasn't a great candidate. People want tall blondes. So you're, you're not tall and blonde? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm short and brunette. <laughs> and, and that was a disqualifier for, for selling your eggs? You know, it's they do headhunt at Ivy League schools, and they're looking for girls who are 20 years old and athletic and tall and blonde. And that is, you know, that's that's what they want for the most part. Did you feel insulted? Oh, I don't know. I think, you know, it was... Uh, kind of self-fulfilling. Doesn't everybody feel that way about themselves that, oh, nobody wants my eggs? <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess ultimately I wasn't really surprised. Did it feel like a, like, like a class judgment? Maybe. Um, you know, I feel more like if you're going to take that leap and get somebody else's eggs because you can't have your own genetic material that you probably would want, you know, the best eggs that you can find. If I have to settle, then I'm going to get... I'm going to settle for Heidi Klum know, with a Harvard I degree. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but the clinic had another option for Sarah. Coming up, she thinks about making that extra money by becoming a surrogate and carrying a baby for someone else. You know, I was kind of like, oh, that sounds crazy. That sounds like a lot. I don't think I can handle that emotionally. But all the while, I'm still going, how are we going to pay these hospital bills? Over the summer, we asked for your stories about breakups. I'm done. I'm just done. It's not you, it's me. And it was the first time I've ever really been in love. And he said, hey, we've got to talk. Oh. Those are the worst words ever. I was emasculating and not supportive enough. I packed up my things and left. And she has moved in with a guy. Some of you also told us about splits from family or friends. I had to break up with my mom. My relationship with this friend was very volatile. Friendship breakups certainly are as dark and dismal as any relationship breakup. But one thing we're still looking for is stories from people who are considering breaking up but haven't yet done anything about it. Those of you who are wrestling with that question, when is it time to let it end? 
If that's you, write us an email or record a voice memo and send it to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. We're also compiling a breakup survival kit, and we want your help building it. What are the songs, books, and movies that have gotten you through a breakup? I recommend Pima Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart, and the movie, An Unmarried Woman. We're collecting suggestions on our Facebook page, or you can email us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, former NFL player Dominique Foxworth. When we talked two and a half years ago, he was finishing at Harvard Business School and not even watching football anymore. We'll listen back on that conversation and hear what's happened since he graduated with his MBA. I kind of made the decision to uh, try my best to quiet those like egotistical urges in me that liked having the big title and liked having the big salary. And, and so I quit with no plan to do anything else. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? 
Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When Sarah Short was 24, she had two kids and was looking for a way to pay off thousands of dollars in medical debt. She decided to become a surrogate. She filled out an application online for an agency about three hours away in Portland, Oregon. I was really surprised at how fast it was. I was kind of, I felt like I was just putting feelers out and then they were like, when can you come to Portland for an interview? And so um, I went out there and they asked me a lot of questions about what I was looking for. Um, it's kind of like a dating website like Match.com where mm. they pair you with a family that has the same values. And then I think it was about two months before I um, met the couple that I was going to work with. They were a lesbian couple who, after 10 years of trying to adopt, had turned to surrogacy. We talked and we just really clicked with this couple in our first interview. And I was like, they, I can see me and my husband in this couple. And, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're really different than us. Sometimes they say or do something where I'm just like, oh, they are so disconnected from the kind of life that I live. How do you mean? Um, they both uh, are executives at Microsoft, and they're very well-to-do. You know, they they are self-made, so maybe that's why I feel like personality-wise we have something in common with them is, you know, they've they've built themselves up. But a lot of times I felt really disconnected from them because their lifestyle is so different than ours. And it's something that... Um, I still deal with now where every time I see them, I'm building building myself up and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so uncomfortable and weird. And then it ends up not being weird because they're just wonderful people. When did you find out how much money you could bring in by being a surrogate? Uh, that was when I was researching the websites. Um, and it, it's pretty consistent across the board. The base rate for that two-year commitment was $40,000. Typically, it's um, split up into a monthly check for the whole time that you're pregnant. So when you have a positive pregnancy test, you start getting a check in the mail. And um, then when you deliver, you'll get, you know, whatever's left over in that final check. Um, there's also, like, all the other things that are paid out separately. That's the that's the base compensation there's also, this is how much you'll get paid if you have a C-section, and this is how much you'll get paid if you have multiples. What was the added benefit financially to you of, of carrying multiples than just carrying one baby? Um, you get $5,000 more for um, each additional baby. And I have a lot of twins in my family, and they were all full-term and really healthy. And so I was like, obviously, genetically, I can carry twins. This is going to be okay, my body can handle this. So once, once the fertilized eggs were, were implanted inside you and you became pregnant and you were growing these twins, what feelings came up that surprised you? Um, I think it felt um, like a little bit too intimate 
I was really conscious of the fact that these were not my babies. And huh. so it always felt a little bit like they were they were kind of too close to me. Like an and, invasion of privacy. Know. Well, yeah, kind of like, um, I mean, my husband could probably speak to this too, like when we're laying in bed and the babies are kicking him. And it's just kind of a really strange sensation to be like, these aren't our babies. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about how it had all the downsides that come with being pregnant, all the hormonal things and health issues, but it didn't have any of the positives. We weren't designing a nursery and talking about names. And um, then there's always, like, the weirdness of being pregnant and having sex, and then it's, like like I was saying, additionally weird when it's not your baby for some reason. As you became more visibly pregnant, what would your conversations be like with strangers? Um, that's probably the thing that I have the hardest time with. I've talked to other surrogates about this, and they're kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. But when I was in the checkout at the grocery store and the clerk would start asking me about my pregnancy, it made me so angry and frustrated and uncomfortable because I would keep trying to shut it down and they would keep asking. And, um, you know, there's the really basic ones like, when are you due and boy or girl that people would ask. But then it was really hard to shut down because I would be like, well, it's a boy and a girl. And then they're like, oh my gosh, twins. We need to talk about this for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> And and it was also weird for my kids because my daughter was five and she um, she knew what was going on and was fine with it. But my son was one to two during this whole process and people were constantly asking him, are you excited about being a big brother? And he wasn't even conscious that I was pregnant. He was, you know, we hadn't talked to him about it and he hadn't been around anybody who was pregnant and so... It was completely going over his head, and people would ask him these questions, and it made me so angry and uncomfortable, and I was just like, leave us alone. Would you ever say, I'm actually a surrogate? Um, I tried not to because that made the conversation longer. <laughs> and I, it, it was always like at the grocery store where I don't want to hold up the line. I just want to get out. There was also some awkwardness with the twins' parents. Pregnancy and childbirth come with a lot of built-in rituals, and it wasn't always clear how Sarah fit into those. I had thought that there would be some kind of baby shower thing, and I had also thought that I wanted to make sure that the parents were as involved as possible and really felt like this was their pregnancy. That was really important to me. And then I heard through the grapevine that they were having a baby shower and I hadn't been invited to it. <laughs> and that was probably the strangest thing that happened the whole time was, shouldn't I be there? <laughs> Did you tell the parents that you heard about the party? No, they... They mentioned kind of uh, pretty close to the date that, oh, yeah, there's a baby shower, and you're, I mean, you're always welcome. You can come. <laughs> and I was kind of like, no, it's okay. <laughs> the birth of the twins a few months later came with its own unfamiliar terrain. Sarah says it felt completely different than the first two times she gave birth. I can't remember 
if they were born on the 17th or the 19th. I don't remember how much they weighed when they were born. Wait, like, there's these you, weird things. You gave birth to <laughs> yes. them and you can't remember the date. <laughs> it's, it's weird how you have your own kids and you remember all those things. Like, I'm sure you know exactly how much your daughter weighed when she was born and what time of the day she was born. I don't remember those things about the twins. At, at what point were you separated, the twins, to their parents? And you in the hospital. So this this is something when I've talked to other surrogates, it varies on where you deliver and who the, who's on shift and all of that. In my case, um, I had a C-section. And so, you know, I'm in a surgery room and they take the babies away. Um, I didn't hold the babies. You know, I delivered them and then they took them right out. And then because they were a little early, they went to the NICU and because the the particular hospital I delivered at treated it like um, like an adoption, and so I was not allowed to come in and see the babies unless the parents were standing outside and walking in with me. Did that feel comfortable? It was it was kind of like the baby shower where I was like, "Oh, this is weird," but I wasn't upset. It, it just felt so silly and ridiculous. Was there part of you that wanted to be emotionally distant from that experience of childbirth since they weren't your kids? For me, it was natural because when my son was born, I looked at him and was like, oh, my gosh, he looks just like my husband. And it was a huge, profound moment in my life that I remember. And when the twins were born, they didn't look like me and they weren't mine and I wanted them to get to their parents. And I left the hospital a day early because I missed my kids and I wanted to get home to my kids. But Sarah's job wasn't over yet. Her contract also stipulated that she'd provide breast milk for the twins. That was that was another strange experience where I was, like, doing this thing without the emotion of having my own baby. Um, I was waking up during the night to pump because I would be in pain. Um, and... So I was I was getting up, but I didn't have a baby to take care of. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I live pretty rurally, so I might have to go a half hour or an hour and a half or something to go to Costco or to run a certain errand. And then I would get there and realize I forgot my breast pump, and it was devastating. It was like, do I drive all the way back and get it? And then obviously I'm worried about my milk supply. There was that weird thing where I felt like I was producing too much milk and making too much money, but I was also afraid of my milk supply dropping off. Yeah. And so um, there was there was just a lot of conflicting emotions about that. What's the rate for pumped breast milk after carrying babies? Um, at the time I was doing it, um, the going rate was a dollar an ounce. <laughs> Talk about wanting your milk production to be like <laughs> well, and that was the thing is i had I had breastfed my kids, and so I didn't know how much I produced, and I was making over a thousand dollars a month in breast milk, and it was completely out of the realm of what I had expected, and so I was like, they're gonna call me up and tell me this is insane because it is insane <laughs> and um and yeah, it wasn't they they didn't comment on it. So I guess they were okay with it. I don't know like what they were expecting. Um, I never asked, but it was definitely more than what I was expecting. <laughs> so what was the total amount that you earned for carrying the twins and for the breast milk afterwards? 
Um, so I like to talk about it um, when people ask me how much I made in terms of I put in a two-year commitment from, you know, the time I signed the contract until the time I was done pumping. And, you know, when you look at it over the course of two years, that's more like a part-time income, you know, like 20000 a year. And so I'm always reticent to tell people just a flat number because it sounds so high and it sounds like I sold these babies for this amount of money. When in actuality, I had a part-time job for two years. So you're sensitive about how it's perceived. You want to make sure it's clear how much time and energy you put into this. Yeah. And I mean, everybody, my family and friends who knew me during that time, they they understand that I was driving three hours to Portland for appointments. And I was making phone calls and sending emails and doing injections and so all the, the time and energy that that took, it was a part-time job. Hmm. What'd you do with the money? Um, paid off my hospital bill first. Yay! Which was awesome. <laughs> it was actually really funny when I called the, um, the collections agency that had my bills, and I told him, I'm calling to pay it. And the guy was so taken aback, and he was like, what? And I... I you know, all of it now. <laughs> I don't know if that had ever happened before. <laughs> so that was amazing to just be like, yep, I'm doing it. I've got it. Here it is. And that was one of the most amazing feelings. Did you buy a house? Yes. Um, we ended up uh, using a portion of that as a down payment on a house, too, which was another one of those cool things that it's so weird to look at my life before the surrogacy and after because, you know, I keep talking about how I wanted to feel like a grown-up, and it made me feel like a grown-up to take that step and go from the really crappy rental that we were living in. My son's bedroom was like a closet. And so now we have this house that to me is a dream house, it was everything that I wanted, and my kids have their own bedrooms now, and it's a life that I never could have pictured for myself a few years ago. The twins are three years old now, and Sarah's going back to college after she dropped out during her first pregnancy. She wants to become a dietitian, but that means a new set of financial obligations. So last year, Sarah started the process of becoming a surrogate again, it felt really similar where I met a couple and I loved them and we were clicking. And then um, I, I, my body didn't respond to the medications and um, the clinic decided that I needed to take six months off and not do any hormones and let my body kind of reset. Because it was going to be a six-month delay, me and the parents parted ways. And it felt like I'd been fired because hmm. I'd had this thought of, like, I have this job, I'm going to have this income, and then I didn't. Has it made you understand the emotional experience of, of women who struggle to get pregnant in a new way? I never thought about it that way. Um, it, it made me angry where I was like, I know I can get pregnant. Why is this not working? This doesn't make sense. You know, I, I kept thinking... 
why can't they just put a baby in me? I know that my body will grow a baby. Who were you angry at? Like, where did the anger get directed? I was, I was angry that I didn't get any medical answers, that they were kind of like, oh, this happens sometimes. We don't know why. Come back in six months. And you want to become a surrogate again? Yeah. So I've had my six months off, and I'm uh, just starting the process again. I'm going to be starting injections, and they're going to see how my body reacts to the medication and if it works this time. So we'll see. Sarah Short. Since we talked, Sarah says doctors have told her she has scar tissue in her uterus after the twins, and she's no longer a good candidate for surrogacy. Now she says she and her family are earning a little extra money by renting out a room in their house. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Adriana Rush. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. You can email us your show ideas or reactions anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Sarah and her family keep in touch with the twins and their parents. She told me they get together twice a year, including a weekend at the beach. She says it's a really nice kind of blended family. And like in all families, there are some differences within it. Um, Like an example is one of the twins, like one of her first words, they weren't even speaking sentences yet, and she said Pellegrino. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me laugh so hard. And they weren't even aware of how ridiculous that was <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that was not one of your child's first words pellegrino no. No. <laughs> i'm anna sale and this is death sex and money from wnyc wnyc